Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us again. This decade is meant to be one of action to protect life on the planet from threats like climate change and accelerating extinctions of plants and animal species. And the first two years of the 2020s were kind of hijacked by COVID, meaning this year, 2022, will be a crossroads if we finally manage to emerge from this pandemic. This year should be a massive test of our willingness to act for a cleaner future. Well, last week, we looked back at 2021. And this week, together again with co-host Alistair Doyle, we will look ahead into the year 2022. Alistair, welcome. I saw a lot of comments in the social media from people wishing that 2022 should be better than 2021. Is there a reason for optimism or do we first need to tackle the structural global problems uh, that I just mentioned? Well, Alex, thanks for having me back. There's going to be a lot of focus on the environment, as you say, on saving nature and fighting climate change in 2022. So that in itself is a glimmer of optimism. Unfortunately, we don't have the luxury of time. Climate change isn't going to wait for better leadership from governments or for some magically positive outcome at the next climate COP, which will be held in Egypt in November. And as you said, species of animals and plants are rapidly dying. The extinction rate we're seeing today is estimated by experts to be between 1,000 and 10,000 times higher than extinction rates we know from the fossil record. Yeah, and these are two ex- extremely scary um, uh, data that you just mentioned here. And on top of that, today is the 6th of January. And in case of anybody missing it today, it is today, a year ago, that we were all witnessing on our screens the events in Washington, D.C., of which we still don't really know the details. But we do know that American democracy is under threat, and that is relevant because we may have difficulties getting America on board for uh, climate action, but we know that without America on board, there will be no climate action at all, as has been proven by the previous president. And I was just watching the news just just 15 minutes ago, and I suppose this must be really complicated to understand for the demonstrators in countries like Kazakhstan that risk their lives to get rid of authoritarian rule, and they will be puzzled to see a democracy that is undermining itself. And they may wonder what some Americans attract in the same kind of authoritarian regime that they are right now fighting against. So we live in really strange times. You're right. There are really strange times, um, both in America and there on the southern border of of Russia, of course, you know, pinning down two of the major powers. We'd all We'd all hope that this year in 2022, we'd be able to focus on what the United Nations calls the existential crisis of climate change emerging from the pandemic. And we certainly need good government, as you say, to solve global issues in 2022, where this year we're going to need international cooperation, for instance, between China and the United States on climate change and this global push for protecting the environment. And we also need a lot more fairness since inequality is on the rise around the world. And climate change is making it worse. Um, as you know, I wrote a book recently, the, the Great Melt, about people living on the front lines of sea level rise in places like Panama or Fiji. They've done the least to cause the problem of global warming that's melting ice sheets from Antarctica to Greenland, but they're suffering the most. And of course, it's also a problem in places 
from Miami to England, where I'm from, and of course the low-lying Netherlands, where, where you are now, Alex. I, I know. <laughs> a, this is, whenever I read about sea level rise, I, I think about my beautiful little house here on this island. And uh, it's, <laughs> it's a sad thought, actually, that it's we can be pretty sure that in at a certain moment, this is all going to be underwater. And I just... I'm pretty sure it will be after my lifetime, but it's it's a sad thought that this is going to happen because once we are at several meters of sea level rise, even with all our ingenuity, it's impossible to um, to stop unless yeah. this plan of the Dutchman uh, Schuert, whatever his surname is, you Just refer go. to me to yes. to invite um, uh, for this program. If his plan works out, uh, that might give us hope, but that seems to be impossible to pay. That is building dikes between France and the UK, which is possible, but then also a dike between Scotland and uh, Norway. Uh, and uh, uh, that could protect us all, but that's uh, right. the amount of money is, uh, is is incredible that's involved, as is the amount of diplomacy to make such a thing work. So yeah. this is um, this is the far, far future and some of the challenges that we are facing, and these are so many challenges altogether. Um, I have good news that I see that one of the names that I see of the listeners uh, let me know that um, uh, that listener um, was going to order your book. So uh, that is um, uh, so, so far for the book promotion. It's called <laughs> The Great Melt. It's a really good book. I'm still about midway and I enjoy reading it, even though the subject is, uh, is uh, very well written. Um, oh, let's move yeah. to, I think the first one we mentioned was Biodiversity. Uh, where are Indeed. we? There's a summit coming up this year, right? That's right. There's a summit coming up. It's meant to be held in Kunming in China. It's been delayed a couple of times already. And who knows whether it will be actually held in person in April or May if it goes ahead. Um, it's meant to be setting new goals for protecting life on the planet by 2030. Um, these, this will update goals that were set a, a decade ago to protect life on the planet by 2020, which... Um, the United Nations concluded we'd fallen short on all of them, unfortunately. Some progress on some of these, but uh, in many ways, you know, we're, we're falling short. And this is, this is about the life support system of the planet. It's life on Earth, right? It's the whole thing. It's not just about polar bears and lions and tigers, although it is, but it's about, you know, bees, for example, that are vital to pollination. Without bees, we wouldn't have any food production of many crops so it's it's in our own interest to to do something to clean up all of these threats we have you know we have um uh species dying out at this extraordinary rate you know we may be facing the a sixth extinction you know the worst rate of extinction since the dinosaurs were wiped out by an asteroid um you know 66 million years ago um, don't look up, I guess. <laughs> it's, it's the same size of, of asteroid. It's between 5 and 10 kilometers. I, I remember, <laughs> I saw that in the movie, and I, I remember uh, that that is also the, 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 amount, the, the size of the asteroid that um, was, uh, was supposed to have uh, killed the dinosaurs, um, yeah. which is a great movie, by the way. So you've seen it already? I saw it, yeah, a week or so ago. Yeah, yeah you too. You I enjoyed think, yeah. it? I enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a bit kind of crazy. I, I really, really hope that our 
planet has not become quite so dysfunctional in politics and uh, everything that people would just ignore <laughs> a, a planet destroying lump of rock flying towards us. But when, you know, some of the footage from uh, the, a year ago in the US Congress makes you wonder about how quite how conspiracy theories spread and how people believe what what is truth and what is not and what is science and what isn't science. Um, it's a, it's a yeah. cautionary tale, isn't it? Yeah, it was it it was all in there, and and of course the asteroid stands for let's say climate change and and, and perhaps biodiversity loss. Um, yeah. there, there's actually now this uh, experiment going on that they launched this uh, space capsule rocket, whatever you call that thing, that is going to an asteroid uh, to see if they can bend it out of its uh, out of its course in case we would get an asteroid um, uh, going to hit us, which may be relevant, but at the same time, I'm wondering, we know that climate change is a disaster that is happening. We know that the sixth extinction has started. Um, Mm. Why not focus on that instead of a disaster that might happen and that we might not be able to do anything against, but maybe that's, that's on the name of science. For who hasn't seen the movie, Don't Look Up, it's on Netflix. I can really advice um, watching it because you will recognize so much uh, especially on a day like the 6th of, uh, of, of January um, yeah. b- back to this biodiversity I have I have the impression this is kind of the forgotten crisis uh, we always well finally we are nowadays talking about climate change I've been mm-hmm. fighting for years together with, with tens of thousands of other people in the world and you are one of them to make people aware that we should talk about climate change and that we should take action. And now that we're finally there, that's only in in the past few years, and only because you have to be blind not to see climate change nowadays with your own eyes and in your own experience, but it seems that we are not there yet with biodiversity loss. People don't really, um, they don't take it as serious and probably... Because most people live nowadays in cities, it is it is less visible than climate change. And and what, yeah, what what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I think so. I think we've kind of we're used to going into supermarkets, aren't we, and sort of getting all of our food from there, and sort of thinking it, everything comes ready packaged or comes in a can or whatever. And we we're sort of away from the, the actual process of growing stuff. Um, enough it would be great if people had a little bit trying a bit, a bit more responsibility to perhaps sort of feeding themselves you know um, if i i'm terrible at it every time i try and grow something it seems to fail but um we need to have this better connection back to life on earth which is vital for us after all i mean i i i think this this frustrates a lot of biodiversity scientists as well i mean i, I remember talking to um bob watson who was the chair of the un um uh, scientific committee that came up with a big report about biodiversity and he was he was saying you know can't can't you write a story saying save the dung beetle you know which which in, in the end i did because i thought it was kind of a nice it was a nice thing he says you know this is not about as, as i was saying you know, it's not about the charismatic animals the pandas or the crocodiles or the, yeah. the tuna or the whales it's about the the building blocks of life it's the the dung beetles are recycling nutrients of dung and so on and, and vital to, to, to for, for, for crop growth to fertilize crops and for spreading stuff around and, to, and and so many bits of 
nature of plants and animals, this web of life that we we depend yeah. upon, is is so vital to us, isn't it? And it's but it's got forgotten because we, it's, it turns up in the shops, doesn't it? I think. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. By the way, dung beetles are amazing. When I go walking in Netherlands, one of my great hobbies, I love to walk around here. Then, in a particular season, I think it's basically it's in summer. Let's say in in in, in July or so. There's a couple of weeks that wherever you go. You see these these little dung beetles really being active. With it's a bit like as kids when we used to grow snowballs, you know, that you push it forward. You you see them uh, pushing the dung around, uh, bringing it to wherever they want to go to make really nice little balls out of it. But yeah, people don't see it, and I think the I think education might also be part of it. That um, kids in cities nowadays they they don't learn anything about nature. They maybe see it in in a movie on Netflix or something, but they don't spend time in nature, which yeah. is something that um, that you need. You need to learn to appreciate nature because otherwise you don't even know that that it's not around. And and I remember reading these studies of kids in the UK that during their uh, the, the, I, I think the the interview question was. Have you been in nature in the past year? And nature was also included a beach or a park in a city. And 10% had not spent one single minute in, a, in, in the last full year in a park, a beach, or in, in, in real nature, in a forest or something. Wow. And I guess that was before the pandemic too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was even before the pandemic. Yeah, this is a yeah, couple of when... years ago. I, yeah. Wow, that's amazing, isn't it? I mean, I I, I'm, I live here in Norway, so my kids grew up here, and you know, luckily here, they do have a day. At a primary school had a day pretty much every week when they went, went out into the forest and wow. looked at the pine trees and maybe stumbled across a deer or something walking past, or grilled sausages over a <laughs> campfire or something like that. You know, so there's a closeness to nature there. But you're right, and. The big sort of UN, United Nations, um, it's kind of been put on the back burner protecting nature, hasn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. It, it seems to, yeah, it, it's, it's always a kind of second one. So so pollution is maybe a third one, that, but people people see pollution. People realize plastic pollution a little bit more because they have plastic in their hands, although they don't see it in the ocean. Uh, but I think this uh, biodiversity thing is is really something. So, so what will when we have this summit of biodiversity? What will be the the goals? What do they try to get out of it? Well, they they come up with a list of ideas. I think for um, for for slowing deforestation, um, cutting pollution, um, adapting to climate change, and protecting the world from invasive species. But the the main goal in the documents and the draft documents, at least, is to set aside 30% of the world's area of the land and the ocean by 2030 into protected areas. It's always been pretty vague about what a protected area is. You know, does that mean no fishing whatsoever? Does it mean sustainable activities? Does it mean, you know, does it mean that the indigenous peoples who live there will be able to go back to looking after it themselves and they're often much better stewards than 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 we've been of um, of rainforests, for example. Um, but you know, so thirty percent, thirty by thirty, is the goal that has that is in the draft documents. That's a huge amount of of area of the world. 
of course. Um, and then with the awareness of climate change, one of the ideas is too that um, you know, some species are already having to move because things are getting warmer. You know, fish stocks are moving towards the poles. Yeah. Um, many animals are moving towards the poles. You know, some bir birds may be able to adapt by just flying. Butterflies may be able to fly further north, but you know there are an awful lot of other animals that are stuck on islands or yeah. um, who can't who can't move after all. So so these these protected areas are going to have to be joined up as well, not just sort of big blotches of Amazon forests that are protected, and then you know another hundred kilometers to the next bit of protected forest. They've got to be joined up so that any migrations can can happen through these. And that's that's going to be a huge, huge increase in protected areas. You know, at the moment, um, the, the, we're at fifteen and fifteen percent or so of terrestrial of land areas are protected, and we're only about eight percent of the ocean is protected. Um, so to get from fifteen and seven to or eight percent to thirty on both counts within eight years. That's quite a stretch, isn't it? I think that's gonna be, that's gonna be huge because that land or that sea that you talk about is already either owned by people or people have fishing rights, etc. That uh, mm. that you all have to do in this short period. So, I hope we we're going to get there. I I just saw today. I think I read it in the Guardian that um, or it was the Independent actually that wrote about a decision of the Johnson government in the UK for more uh, rewilding of the UK. Um, that sounds uh, interesting, but I think the environmental groups were quite critical that the definitions were so vague that it wasn't really clear what the plans really were and how to how to measure success. And it, it might easily be that somebody claims success of rewilding while actually nothing has happened or they have created hunting grounds or that other things that they were not supposed to do there. Um, but but the concept of rewilding is something that I uh, that I really like. And what yeah. you said about these connections between these nature areas—that's something in, in this tiny country where I'm at the moment in the Netherlands, where we work a lot on. We make all these echo ducts, so it's it's a connection above the highways that the animals can cross. We have already about thirty of them. We're going to buy to build twenty more. Um, so we we try to create one huge ecosystem. In uh, in the Netherlands, which which is a neat plan to do in a densely populated small country, so we we cherish a little bit of nature that uh, that we have. Mm -hmm. If we move to um, to climate change, um, what's up in store for the next year, twenty twenty two, COP twenty seven, of course, following twenty six. I would say that's the first thing that comes to mind. <laughs> COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh in, um, in Egypt in, in November will be the follow-up to Glasgow, the last COP, of course. And um, Glasgow is kind of a glass half full, half empty, maybe, on climate change. You know, it, You're it, generous. It, yeah, I think so, probably, aren't I? Yeah. You think it was the worst, obviously. But it was a little a better than blah, 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 There were right, some positive signs. Yeah, I agree <laughs> on the few positive signs. But I wouldn't, but, I wouldn't say half. <laughs> I think you're right there, yeah. It, it was meant to be the big ratcheting up point of the Paris Agreement five years on from the, from the Paris Agreement or six years on because of COVID. Yeah. Um, this is the time when we were really meant to get back on track towards 
limiting global warming to well below two degrees, ideally 1.5 above pre-industrial times. We're already careening upwards. We're at 1.1 degree. Um, so there's not a lot of margin for error here. And, you know, we're meant to cut our emissions by almost half by 2030. And emissions are rebounded last year after COVID and they're probably going to rise again this year. So, you know, it's it's getting very, very <laughs> nasty looking in terms of having to do something. But at least in Glasgow, they did start talking about phasing down coal um, rather than phasing it out. But okay, they're making some semantic progress here and using the word coal in these um, and fossil fuels and in these UN decisions. And they have agreed to come back and to strengthen their commitments this year. This all sounds a lot like a blah, 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 I suspect. But, but you know, words on paper do have a little bit of power, I think, to, to hold governments to account. And, and I, I just hope that, you know, the way that we as, as citizens can see that our governments are promising stuff and never fulfilling it, that eventually there's going to be a sort of breaking point at which we say, you know, people are, will start electing governments that are going to do the right thing or, or putting their money in companies that shares that are going to do the right thing, investing their money in, in the right place, putting pressure on their local um, authorities to do the right thing. Yeah. Um, so that's one of the big things that will happen. There will be this cop. There will be the new cop in, in Egypt, at least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, well, I'm, I'm hopeful. By the way, uh, since what the people that listen don't know is that we can see each other on Zoom, although uh, we cannot speak to each other on Zoom. And therefore, I know that the sound that we hear is that your microphone is touching your uh, collar. Oh, I'm sorry. And when yeah. you get a little bit away, we don't hear that. Yeah, that's excellent. Then we don't hear this uh, crispering sound on, on, on the background. So, yeah, Sharmal Shaikh, uh, that's, yeah, it will be the next step. Uh, having worked on multilateral negotiations, I, I know, of course, the power of words, which are very easy for any Journalist, I'm much more a journalist now than a diplomat that I once was. For, for journalists, it's easy to make fun of, you know, just, just, just tiny little words. And, and that it, it is, of course, uh, Titanic deck chairs. And that's, that's easy to argue. But on the other hand, that's the way diplomacy is done. So little things like uh, that coal is, uh, is, is, is mentioned for the very first time. Actually, is more important than it uh, than it looks uh, for the for the very first time, um, and yeah, of course, this this is one thing. At the same time, I think there is a lot of uh, positive developments going on when you look at uh, at business and let's say general awareness that something needs to be done. And of course, there is an enormous amount of greenwashing going on, but. Um, when, for instance, when I when I look now, I was I was watching television, as I said just just before we started. Um, normally, I never watch Dutch television, but to stay in touch with my roots, I try to watch a bit of television when I'm in my house in the Netherlands. And uh, what I noticed that in the commercials before the evening news, there's now hardly any commercial that is not mentioning something like green and sustainability and all those those kind of 
um, green buzzwords, um, and even even the oil companies are nowadays talking about sustainability. So, um, from for many years, they spoke too little about it. They gave too little attention, and now it seems that they give attention to it even when they shouldn't. So, mm-hmm. but in a sense, it's positive that it's recognized as something that is, uh, uh, yeah, that 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 needs that needs to be addressed. So, I think that's that's a positive trend. Let's hope that. I mean, I could uh, here in Norway, where I live, also there's um, the main oil company here, Equinor, has a big advertising campaign on the television where it's describing children who are doing extraordinary things, you know, at school or in plays or inventing things, and they refer to them as tomorrow's heroes because they're clearly yeah. worried that these kids are not going to are not going yeah. to be um, joining an oil company. Yeah. They'll be looking for some other form of job. So yeah. they are, they're trying to make out, you know, this, this is a job for the future to be, to be in an oil company. Um, admittedly one that's trying to make itself over to go over to more wind energy and so on. But you're right. I think every single, there was a review of oil company um, advertisements, I think, and the number of times they use uh, phrases like green energy or wind energy or solar energy compared to the number of times they use the word oil or gas <laughs> is way out of kilter with um, their actual production. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's interesting. It's also the, um, I think they calculated that if all the uh, oil uh, and gas lobbyists that were present in Glasgow, if they if you put them together in one delegation, it would have been the biggest delegation of of all countries that that was present in Glasgow. Yeah. Uh, and where, if you see what they are really doing, it's it's of course a fraction of of all their work. So it's yeah. um, but you have to start somewhere, and you cannot just. Uh, abolish them. I still believe that uh, there has been a lot of criminal behavior by these companies. And I think that the, the, the people that have been actively working on denying the science, I think they should be prosecuted. Um, just as I believe that if somebody in the cinema calls that there's a fire and creates a panic, that that person should be prosecuted. And we have examples of that in law. And if there is a fire in the cinema and you're the one shouting that there's not a fire, then you should also be prosecuted. And if the whole world goes on fire and you know that you're the one causing it, um, you should be prosecuted for not warning. You should certainly be prosecuted if you are uh, actively paying lobbying groups working for you to... Uh, create confusion and to convince politicians and the media that there is no problem. I think that's a crime. I really believe it is. And I am surprised that we still haven't seen any progress in this field. Yeah, there's been there's quite a lot of rising um, numbers of climate lawsuits aren't there around the world. But I think that's an interesting, we should try and lodge that. Uh, I won't. I won't make many friends doing so up here. <laughs> but I, I, I'm, I'm surprised that we don't see more there. But I think the yeah. climate lawsuits is actually a very positive trend, and uh, and the Netherlands NGOs in Netherlands have been quite active on that. And, yeah, and the, that Dutch, yeah. the Dutch yeah. Supreme Court told the Netherlands to cut its greenhouse gases by more than it's achieved, right? Didn't it? Which yeah. is um, pretty amazing. Has the has the government actually done that? Well, the the yes, uh, they did, and we have now a new government which started uh, this 
week or will will start this oh they they should have started today i guess yeah uh so we now have new government it took us nearly a year to form that government and then you're basically back at the kind of government we have but what is different is that uh the ambition on climate change is now really much more and that's partly because people voted for a party uh, one of the four coalition parties that is uh, really serious about climate change and they the the minister for climate also comes from from that party and they made the agreement that the four parties made climate is has become much more of uh, of a priority and that is according to what what the judge had uh, told our previous government to do and and the government when the judge said so it was interesting to see the reaction of the government um they uh said they would follow what was said by the judge but at the same time they were going to appeal and i haven't followed it in detail but they they said that they were going to appeal because they did not agree that a policy decision like what are you going to do on on climate change that a judge had something to say about it and uh so it, it's been a really interesting legal case and you see that it's it's now taking place all over the world at city levels at individuals um uh, uh, process, uh um um uh, co- coming with a case against the government suing governments um and yeah so it's 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 a good worldwide trend and yep. i think it's uh, it's it's how it uh, how it should be so i hope yep. we will see more of that because it has proved to be quite effective at least it 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 worked well in the netherlands um both against the government and then there was also uh, the sue against uh, shell um one of the Results may have been that Shell has now left the country and is moving its headquarters to the UK, but I'm quite sure there's quite a few other uh, tax and other reasons uh, why why they did so. Um, but I think that's a, that's an interesting uh, trend. Um, yeah, because yeah, some, yeah. something else I, I I saw in the media today. I wonder what what you saw about it. But there was um, this thing that. Um, the news that uh, the Times reported uh, about the the UK Energy uh, Secretary, who was just days after uh, COP um, twenty six in Glasgow, meeting with all kinds of oil ex- executives. Did you hear about it? It's extraordinary. Yes, I saw that story too. I mean, it's um, the so many sort of ish- examples of double standards in, around the around climate change aren't there both in britain as you say here and in many other countries i mean the in britain there was a controversy before the cop about the britain wanted to open a, a coal mine you know at the same time as they're championing an end to coal and um you know they needed this special type of coal that they can find deep underground in the north of england and it would create jobs of course but wait a minute you know you may <laughs> if you're going to be championing cop 26 which was billed as a, a turning point for humanity and to phase out coal you know opening up um new coal mines or in this case keeping drilling in the north sea just sounds just just crazy doesn't it um yeah, yeah i also find this incredible i mean you're you're saying one thing at COP26 and just days later, the 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 energy secretary has a private dinner uh, and, and encourages 
the oil executives to keep drilling in the North Sea. The word encourage is used. Um, um, that is, the, the hypocrisy is incredible. It's, it's stunning, uh, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's much, really, really stunning. Yeah, Pretty much every single oil and gas producer has some way of arguing that their oil is needed, their oil and gas is needed. You know, Norway says, look at the high gas prices in, in Europe at the moment. We need to be pumping more gas. Um, we need to be, you know, look at people are relying on, Western Europe is relying on Russian gas at the moment. We should be developing more fields and so on and so on and so on. I'm sure you know Russia has its own arguments. Um, Saudi Arabia certainly has its own arguments, saying we're, we're, we're much cheaper producers than the rest of the world, and uh, pretty much everybody has their own arguments. And Britain here has its own arguments. And weighing uh, weighing jobs against the environment is a is an awful way of putting it, as as they seem to be doing in this case, because there are plenty more jobs to be made in clean energy than there are in a fading oil and gas industry in in the United Kingdom. Yeah, yeah, it's it's in. There's so many more jobs in in the renewables. I know the numbers in in the US are uh, only fifty thousand people working in coal. In the complete United States, of which is more than three hundred million people, uh, whereas there's hundreds of thousands of new jobs available in uh, when when transitioning into um, solar and, and and wind energy. Um, mm. And yeah, I think this 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 hypocrisy is 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 amazing to see, and it 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 feels a bit like a, a scene of Yes Minister, which is now what is it forty years ago or something, where you you just see the politicians moving around and what they say in the media, what what they then do the next moment in the next room, and and trying to get away with all this uh, towards the public. And it's it's good that a, a newspaper like The Times, which is maybe not the most obvious one to, to report about this, that they came out with this. That, uh, that was a positive surprise of of today. You see the same, by the way, in, um, in the United States, where uh, Biden, who wants to champion climate change, is calling upon OPEC countries to produce more oil. And it's it just puzzles me how this wor world is working. Um, I've been trying to understand it for the past thirty or forty years, but I I keep being uh, keep being surprised. Which brings us, by the way, to the United States and climate. When we talk about climate, you can never forget about the United States. And um, I remember the optimism uh, a year ago when Biden took over. Of course, we had had the, the horrible Trump years, horrible for many reasons, and the climate was just, just one of them. And I remember there was hope for, for new climate action and that we hoped for a good outcome of COP26 in Glasgow. And, and John Kerry was back, who, who's a champion on this. And there's not much left of that optimism, I think. What do you think? I think that's right. I, I saw a, there was a story in the New York Times yesterday talking about how Biden has failed on, on or failed to to do what he promised on, on, on climate action a year ago. And um, it was quite hard hitting, but many of the comments were sort of saying, no, it's not Biden's fault. It's the Republicans' fault for standing in the way of this. And it's Joe Manchin's fault and for, for failing to back Biden's Build Back Better Act, you know, which includes 555 billion for climate action, which, as you say, you know, it's stuck on Capitol Hill at the moment, isn't it? It's um, 
the United States is a difficult place to get legislation through, isn't it? And this, this, the hopes of of Biden, who who came back and joined the Paris Agreement the day after the day of his inauguration, signed the papers and swept back into the Paris Agreement, which the Obama administration had championed, had, had designed the Paris Agreement before Donald Trump pulled out. Um, there was just this wave of optimism. Um, you know, it was like. I can remember being at, in Bonn when um, Todd Stern, who was um, President Obama's uh, climate envoy, turned up to the first talks um, uh, of, the, of the Obama administration. People stood up and clapped when he came into the room, thinking that this was, this was finally the United States getting on board for climate action. And it's been back and forward, hasn't it? And, but, and that, but now... You know, the high hopes that we had from Biden a year ago um, or early, early this year, it's only a few months ago, isn't it, yeah. are, 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 really, are really in trouble, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. And then there's on top of that, there's the, this uh, decision of the Supreme Court, which has, of course, now been filled with uh, three of uh, Trump's um, uh, supporters. And uh, they will, they may soon restrict the president's authority to regulate CO2 emissions uh, by eliminating the federal government's ability to use the Clean Air Act. Uh, So if at federal level you can no longer significantly limit the greenhouse gas emissions from the nation's power plants, then one of the main tools that you need to to reduce CO2 emissions is taken out of your hands. That would be a disaster if, if they take that decision. Yeah, because even Donald Trump didn't dare to try and challenge or initially didn't try and overturn the, the fact that the, the Environmental Protection Agency could regulate CO2 as a pollutant. Um, yeah. And, and, and now this, this is under threat, isn't it? You can, they can start to reduce this um, ability to, 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 to regulate it that way. Yeah. Um, worrying times, yeah. Yeah, worrying times, yeah. And then you have the midterm elections coming up in November, um, threatening, of course, the Democrats' control of Congress. Yeah. And, um, you know, it could freeze movement for years, couldn't it, if the Republicans get it back into time? Yeah, yeah, and that brings us to January 6th, the, the, the first, do you say anniversary or do you use commemoration in, in English for, <laughs> I don't know, I don't know what um, word yeah. to use, but it's, it is truly worrying what is, what is going on in, in, in the United States at this very moment. And the, today, uh, th- did you see the article that Jimmy Carter, uh, wrote in the, this, this op-ed in the New York Times today where he said, I fear for our democracy that was, uh, the words he used and he says and i quote here uh, that the united states now teeters on the brink of a widening abyss and that without immediate action we are at the genuine risk of civil conflict and losing our precious democracy this is a former president of the united states well in his 90s uh, still fully being aware of, of, of the bigger picture of, of policy in the United States, especially against the background of his, um, uh, his own good work that he has done all his life for human rights issues, who is looking now at his own country and is shocked about 
the, the, the dangerous pivotal moment in the history of the United States that we are on. I think this is quite spectacular. Historians of the future will refer to what former president Jimmy Carter has written today in the New York times. I think so, yeah, yeah. And just l listening to Joe Biden a few hours ago talking on the anniversary, grim anniversary commemoration, I don't know, um, marking this this one year, um, you know, came out, di didn't mention Trump by name, but of course <laughs> the, the former defeated president spread a web, web of lies about the 2020 election. Um, you know, he, his bruised ego matters more to him than our democracy and our constitution. He can't accept that he lost. He's an extraordinary. Imagine this. Imagine a scenario like this ten, ten years ago, where you've got a former president like Jimmy Carter, as you say, warning of threats to the of a coup d'état and, and and threats to democracy, and the same. The, you know, Joe Biden here talking about denouncing his his predecessor as. You know, creating a web of lies and Kamala Harris was also comparing saying that this day would be remembered like um, the date you know the attack on Pearl Harbor or the 9-11 terror attacks um, these are just extraordinary times aren't they yeah. and as you say you know we need to have governance we need the United States the United States has been admired for such a long time hasn't it and now it's 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 really difficult to imagine how we're going to get out of this yeah it it really is and and yes it is a day that we live in infamy uh, together with um, what is it um, 7 december uh, 41 and and uh, and, and 9 11 this is another one that will will make it for the history books and it i think as those other two that kamala mentions um it, it takes time before you can really assess what the impact is. If you take, for instance, 9-11, we were all, everybody listening to this remembers watching television for days and just, just trying to comprehend what was going on. But none of us had any idea of what would really happen. This, this war on terror, the war in Afghanistan, and then this crazy idea of invading Iraq where there was no Al-Qaeda in Iraq. There was a brutal dictator who made sure that anybody who had sympathy for Al-Qaeda was murdered immediately. So there wasn't any Al-Qaeda in Iraq. And then uh, having a respected uh, uh, Secretary of State uh, of the US coming to the Security Council, convincing the world that there actually uh, was a reason to invade Iraq and then getting many Western countries on board. I mean, all of these things were direct or indirect, a result of 9-11. And here we have the 6th of January. We're only one year on. We still haven't um, seen the conclusions of the committee that's investigating it. Uh, we hear in the last few weeks a lot of new information coming out, which stands me actually hopeful that, that they have been doing something because for a long time we didn't hear anything. But we have no idea what will happen in, in the years following. We know that midterm elections are coming. We know that the Republicans have changed the laws in 19 states, basically make it more difficult for Democrats to vote. So basically undermining democracy within the democratic rules that they have. They're, they're purging out those Republicans 
that have refused uh, to 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 sign up to a lie. So only those that are firm believers or supporters of the big lie uh, are now uh, the ones going to 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 counter vote. So basically, democracy is being undermined as we speak, and this trend is going on. And if you would have elections today with exactly the same result as uh, as the previous elections uh, that got Biden elected, it would very, very likely have been Donald Trump that would have been elected by 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 a minority of uh, of the American uh, population, and that is not uh, what democracy is. And it, it democracy is something that you should nurture and 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 grow. And you should you should take care of it because if you don't, you fall back to the much easier system of of authoritarian rule. Yeah, exactly. And it's um, it really feeds through, doesn't it, into things like fighting climate change, where we so really do need the United States. It's no longer the biggest emitter because China's overtaken. But you know, it, it the the way that the United States system functions in terms of you know to get to get a treaty, an international treaty um, approved in the United States, you need a vote of two thirds of the members of the Senate, so sixty seven people, and so that means that. Um, you know, to, to ratify the Paris Agreement formally, or or the, go back to the Kyoto Protocol. The Kyoto Protocol was was designed by the Clinton administration with with Al Gore as vice president. Um, George W. Bush then sort of dropped out in two thousand and one, and then you know we get Obama designed the the Paris Agreement. Um, Donald Trump drops out and it's and then biden rejoins but this is all being done by executive action executive um orders because because you can't get the senate you cannot get anything through the legislative process any longer because of this partisan division which is which is a real threat to democracy isn't it people are sort of we've gone into sort of whiplash politics on on climate change and in any environmental protection indeed, in the United States. And um, it's really hard to see how we're going to get out of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's tells me really... Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm deeply worried for, for uh, the future of the US and uh, in, in, for their democratic system. Anything that I'm reading, anything that I'm following, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just stunned by, by what I'm seeing. And yes, of course, my, you could say, you know, it's not my country, so why should I be interested? Well, one of the reasons that I am interested is that the US is still the second biggest emitter in the world and historically and per capita, uh, they are the biggest emitter of of greenhouse gases, and as long as they are doing that, it uh, makes it very hard to say or to ask of any other country in the world that they should emit less, uh, because they say, well, if, if the average American is allowed to burn so much, why is my poor country supposed to to take action? So. We're all on board on this. This planet is getting smaller and smaller because the world's getting bigger and the planet stays at the same time, same size. So you could basically say as well that the world is getting smaller and it's getting more crowded. And there, that's, that means in such a situation that you need more cooperation and not less. And you should, should, should be more flexible and you should, you need more 
you need more equality because that's another thing. You, you, you can't solve climate change in a situation where the world is, is polarizing into different camps and whether that is Democrats or Republicans or whether that is rich or poor. Um, now we have, as you see, and don't look up, you have these crazy rich, um, uh, people that are now buying rockets to escape the hellish place that they have helped to create. Uh, that shouldn't be the case. They, they we, we, we should have a much more fair division of the scarce resources that we have, which will ultimately lead to more, more people being able to lead a good life. And, and I think everybody has the right to lead a good life. Yeah. Exactly. There are sort of so many things that have decided, like cuts in greenhouse gas emissions or to phase out harmful fossil fuel subsidies that the G7 or the G20 will sign up to pretty much every year. And um, it, it never quite seems to gain enough traction, does it? Let's hope that, you know, 2022, if we get rid of the pandemic, the pandemic is a real shadow over all of this isn't it as well um if, we, if the pandemic can recede enough that we can get on with trying to fix the planet these huge environmental problems that we're facing on biodiversity and on uh, climate change and maybe we can we can make some sort of progress yeah i hope so on the other hand i don't think that in the future we will have many years where we have the luxury where we can say Let's first get rid of this problem and then we're going to take care of the other problem. I mean, I, w I wish that would be the case, but I think increasingly that is less likely because we see more and more these kind of compounded risks that the pandemic feeds into the biodiversity and biodiversity is linked to climate change. A climate, link a climate change is linked to, to all kinds of forms of, of bad governance and uh, we have so many problems and they should all be be dealt with in in some kind of coherent structure. And we don't have that structure because we still rule the world as if we live in Napoleonic times where, you know, you have nation states taking care of their own things and they're fighting each other or they're negotiating with each other. Whereas in practice, we already live on in just one big municipality, which is called the planet. Mm. Education's the thing, I think, isn't it? If we could get into schools some sort of just the headlines of what you just said there, you know, just making sure that people have the idea of this is a common home, that the planet is something that needs to be safeguarded by us all and not just look after our own selfish interests um, and those of, other, of our countries, but to look at the at the planet as a as a as a whole as a whole, we could really we could really make some difference yeah. here, I think. So, but, but strangely, the development often goes in the other direction. I mean, it's not just, let's say, the, the, the Trump kind of nationalistic people thinking about themselves, but you see it everywhere. Brexit in the UK is a good example. Uh, and you see all these parties in Europe that are nationalistic. They always talk about going back in time. They always refer to some kind of beautiful past that doesn't exist anymore that actually never existed in the past either it's something they create in their mind as if the uk now has independence independence from what mm. from something they were part of they were actually 
extremely influential. They managed to, they had such good diplomats, they managed to bend all the rules always in the advantage <laughs> of the UK. Yes. Until the moment they kicked themselves out, and now they're, they're now they're whining that they're not part of the of the fun anymore. But you yes. you see this everywhere. You see the extremes in Hungary or Poland. That uh, yeah. I see in my own country, you know, populist parties coming up with you know, the easy solutions, and you see it in France. Somebody like 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 uh, like Marine Le Pen saying France is no longer safe, as if France was safe in the past. I don't yes. know. Yes, 1944 or something. When when was France so safe? She's referring to the past, and they all they all do so. And I think that's uh, that's a dangerous development. It's not going to solve the problems that we need to solve. Yeah, with Brexit, we um, in Britain, where I'm from, of course. Um, I, I worked in Brussels as a journalist many years ago, and you know the joke even then when Britain had joined the EU in the 70s. Um, kind of late because we were kept out of it for a while. But you know, the joke even in the in the in the 80s when I worked there was, um, how do you tell the British delegation's jet when it arrives for a summit at Brussels Airport? And they, the the answer is, it's the jet that keeps whining after the engines are turned off. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, that's, that's all they do. They wind their way to influence in in the in the in the. Uh, within the European Union. But as you say, they brought along a lot of people and brought brought along a lot of other countries who have created alliances with um, Scandinavian countries and the Netherlands was often supportive too of, of the British type of positions and as a counterweight to this big um, Franco-German um, dominance of the EU economically, if you like. And, um, we, you know, Britain has lost that voice now. You know, yeah. For all this talk of taking back control... Yeah, um, we've lost an awful lot of control. Yeah, I think the hashtag to follow on Twitter is called uh, Brexit benefits, which is not about the benefits, as you can imagine. <laughs> yes. And, uh, yeah. So so far on 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 that part. So and what on on since we're looking ahead at 2022, whenever you and I talk together, we just keep on talking in all kinds <laughs> of directions. But I on 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 the list of notes, I have here the word climate science. What are we uh, what will we? What should we expect on climate science this year? So yes, the last year in August, the the UN's panel of climate scientists, the world's leading climate scientists, put out a report about the the looming crisis of you know more floods, droughts, heat waves, uh, which the United Nations said was code red, showed code red for the planet that we're causing unprecedented harm for the planet and we're about to reach these thresholds of 1.5 degrees and unless we do something absolutely drastic. so But that was actually only the first installment of this mammoth report, which will run to two, two more sections and a summary and a total synthesis report this year. So in, in February, we're going to have a report about the, the impacts of climate change and um, you know, from from the melting ice caps of uh, Antarctica and Greenland to to flooding in um, you know in Bangladesh or in, in Germany and, and ways to adapt to rising heat. Uh, then in March we get um, the working group three will come up with uh, what the solutions to climate change are. You know, the the last one um, a few years ago came out very heavily in terms of working out how to do negative emissions, how to suck 
carbon dioxide out of the air um, and bury it, perhaps. I don't, you know, this is becoming even more urgent now. We've got to find ways not, not just to cut emissions, but to actually reduce them to, to, to so we get below zero emissions, if you like. We've got to start burying this stuff underground so that's that's and then in september there'll be a synthesis report of all of this of course the the code red report we had last year is 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 going to be the was the big headline grabbing one um journalists tend to cover less these next two three reports but they're still going to be pretty key to guiding the planet guiding governments um, in coming years um and these reports you know they're sometimes derided by um people in the United States, Republicans especially, or rather only by Republicans, as being um, kind of just made up by scientists. But these reports are signed off by all governments. You know, OPEC governments have gone, come along and said, have not objected to these things. You've, the Saudi, Saudi Arabia has accepted the science behind this. Um, we're heading for this, you know, this existential, we're in this existential crisis, uh, unless we do something really drastic now, um, and even OPEC countries are on board about this. Um, you can't question this science, really. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. What you normally see with all these IPCC reports is that you have the the real report, which is hundreds or often thousands of pages, and then on top there is this kind of cover note that has been negotiated uh, between uh, the the delegations from the countries, and that is already often a uh, it, it, it's always a very much a political compromise. So some of the worst facts that are in the reports are kind of being played down or are not coming up in, in the synthesis uh, report uh, on top of it. And, and it, then what you see in the media, is it often takes a few days because in the first day, everybody goes to this, all journalists go to this kind of cover note and then only in the days that follow, they have the time to dive much deeper and they get more details coming out. But I think the one on impact that we will get next month will be, as was the previous one, will be shocking. And your book is basically also about impact. Yeah. yeah so it's, is. Yeah. yeah, those impacts. I mean, one of the things I remember that always shocks me whenever I read a new report that comes out like every six years or so is when you read about Asia and uh, the, 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 what they call the third pole, the, the Himalayas, uh, the impact of the melting there, how that will, what that will mean for the kind of 2 billion, more than 2 billion people that depend on the water of the Himalayas. And that's in combination with distorted weather systems, uh, monsoons that either don't arrive or arrive at the wrong time with too much water or too little water. And that's that's a story to watch, I would say, in 2022. Indeed, yeah, yeah. The, as you say, the water from, coming from the Himalayas, as those glaciers melt, of course, it, as you say, it's, um, it disrupts irrigation both in up in China and down in Southeast Asia, from India to to you know the Mekong River and so on. Every, everywhere is um, is affected by this. Billions of people. Um, yeah, it's yeah it's, it was for me the story that woke me up to climate change when I read about this for the very first time somewhere I don't know that must now, now be certainly more than 15 years ago maybe 20 years ago it was a UK 
article that I read, a British article that I read, and that was particularly about the Himalayas. That was for me the first time that I I'd read about climate change before. It had been on my desk, uh, but that was for me a wake-up call like, wow, this is going to be so big for so many people. This is going to be so huge. And since then, I've been drawn to this. This this must be, I don't know, 2004 or something around that time. I know I just arrived in Vienna. That was in 2004. So I guess around that time, that, uh, that opened my eyes for 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 what uh, what the impact, how huge the impact was uh, was going to be. And um, it's, uh, yeah, and then, then for next year, um, I think a, a, a last thing to mention is uh, this is going to be uh, a, an, a, another commemoration, not just of one year now on the 6th of January, but it's also 50 years ago that um, there was the Stockholm conference. Indeed. The first major global conference on the environment in Stockholm in June 1972. Yeah. I mean, it's the one that led the way to the Earth summits in Rio de Janeiro, yeah. which which yeah. led to the, the, the UN treaties on climate change, the UN Convention on Climate Change. Um, you know, it laid down 26 principles to limit pollution, phase out nuclear weapons, all sorts of great ideas, but it, it didn't really have any teeth. Um, it, you know, it, it led to the creation of the UN Environment Program, which is based in Nairobi, which sort of produces reports of about how to fix the planet and so on. Um, um, and, you know, it did say, the Stockholm Declaration at the end of this conference said, um, warned that, to defend and improve the human environment for present and future generations has become an imperative goal for mankind. You know, we'd be good to remember that in 2022, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are words to, uh, they're, they're still valid uh, 50 years on. And um, it's, uh, it's amazing. For half a century, we've been, we've been warned by the experts, by the Club of Rome, by uh, by the Stockholm Conference, um, the Stockholm Environment Institute that I've been connected to for 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 quite a while is actually named after. It's not only based in Stockholm; it's named after this uh, this conference. And um, it's uh, we 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 haven't come far enough. Yeah, yeah. An imperative goal for mankind. Yeah, we really need to keep that in mind, don't we? Yeah, maybe those are. Uh, Good words to um, uh, to end this uh, this session. I try not to make them longer than one hour. I think we started about an hour ago. Um, we covered a lot of ground, um, a lot of worries for the next year, but also a lot of openings on where to work on. Um, and um, uh, we will be back uh, for the listeners uh, in exactly one week, um, likely same time, same place. Although. I'll be in Ottawa by then, um, but uh, we'll, we'll send out on Twitter and I'll call in uh, the announcements um, for this. Um, are there any last things we should mention before we close? Any thoughts from your sites? I think we've covered, as you say, a lot of, a lot of ground here. We've gone from um, 50 years ago, the commemorations to what we need to do now to to January the 6th, the tragic events of 
last year in the United States, and let's just hope that we can get the world economy, everything, politics, governance gets back on track a little bit in 2022 so that we can finally address this imperative goal for mankind. Uh-huh. Those are great words to uh, to end this. Thank you so much, um, uh, Alistair, first of all, for, uh, for being here, and uh, to the listeners uh, to this podcast. Uh, please keep joining us in, uh, in the future. And you can always react. But I see people clapping here. Thanks for the clapping. <laughs> That's uh, something I can see on my screen. I'm not sure if you can Thank see you, it Alex. on your side. Uh, <laughs> more claps are coming in. Thanks, guys, for listening. And I uh, hope to, uh, to hear you and see you in a week from now. I will end this room. Bye-bye. Bye.